Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Here on Thursdays, uh, we're at the Commonwealth Club with my co-host, John Zipper. Hey, Michelle. Welcome. We get to do this live, but it really is a taping for the Progressive Voices Network, and then we post the podcast up at Commonwealth Club, and uh, we feature... LGBTQI thought leaders into the program here at the Commonwealth Club. They've been around for over a hundred years old. Very ancient. (laughs) We look like it. We look like we've been sitting here for over a hundred years old. Um, And so this week we have a special guest. Our guest has performed um, uh, for many LGBTQ organizations around the Bay Area. And they, well... The day that I met Remy was a day in which I served as an MC for API Cutesy, and Remy had performed, and I just was so, I was so touched by the expression and the words and the opportunity to be inclusive and understand, you know, where we intersect in our identities, in our 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 social justice work, in our advocacy. And so I've been a fan ever since. I'm super excited to welcome Remy here at the Commonwealth Club. Remy, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm super excited and glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity, Michelle. Yeah. There's so much that I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been thinking about our conversation for a little over a month now, and so I was excited that you were like, hey, I want to be on the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll start with the traditional question here on the program, which is, a coming out story, and mm-hmm. that's up to you how you take it. We ask every single person, including our allies, mm-hmm. which they always have the most interesting responses. Yeah. Uh, it can be a you know a series that you could produce on a sh- TV show, but I'll try to keep <laughs> it a bit brief. Um, I look at my journey as a South Asian bisexual trans woman as one that's hit a lot of pinnacles, uh, reached the summit, but a lot of it is driven by agility and perseverance. Um, I was born in India um, in the 80s, so I'm an 80s child. Um, And I kind of realized at a very young age that, you know, this wasn't feeling right, like that the body that I came into being was not necessarily the best fit. Mm-hmm. And honestly, uh, there, you know, there's a lot of Bollywood influence on me. There's an actress that I looked up to, I look up to still. And I just thought that one fine day as I aged, I would wake up and I would have the perfect body that I desired. But six years came, that didn't happen. Seven came, didn't happen. 10 came around, didn't happen. I think at 11 or so, I started expressing myself. Like, I started dressing up in my mom's clothes. And people thought it was funny. Um, and the some people thought it was really awesome because I'm a replica of my mom. Like, she takes after me. That's what I tell people usually. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, people thought, you know, she it's just her dressed up in... Uh, you know, in a sari at a younger age. And I told her, this is how I want to look. And she didn't initially understand. And I think the challenge for her was, you know, I have, you know, I've only given birth to sons and nobody else behaves like that. So why are you behaving so differently? So, but she didn't like totally discount it because as you all know, moms know, yeah. right? Um, so I was, you know, I, I also struggled with speech. I didn't speak until I was seven. 
So she just put all of this together and assumed that this was a part of that, you know, journey and like not feeling fully confident and such. Because, you know, in the South Asian culture, it's all about being male and masculine and like showing that strength. And my brothers were definitely displaying that. I was displaying it in a different way. And I actually say today I'm the most courageous and boldest of all of them. Mm. Um, I think at 11 or so, I started feeling and realizing that I was very different. Um, my expression was very different. I didn't want to dress in very dark clothes. And this is where, you know, I kind of struggled with my, myself of this gender binary. We say blue is for boys, pink is for girls. But back then, that's how I associated with the gender. And I started dressing up in floral shirts and like being more pink and more reds and all of that. And, and so... That kind of got people excited around me, but it again was seemed as a just a you know part of growing up. It was never identified as something that this is who I am. Um, and unfortunately, the breaking point was when people started viewing me as non-male. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I was going through the hormones, um, and you know, I, I've done these tests, and I wouldn't say I'm intersex, but there is an element where I have always had very high levels of estrogen in me. So, you know, my skin was always smooth, even before I started hormones and such. So I definitely was taunted a lot in school. Um, I was bullied a lot, and I was abused. And this school system in India is not that... I would say, strict or stringent around such things. So parents didn't get called in to discuss these things and such. And I think the tipping point and the breaking point, unfortunately, was when I was 13 years old, um, just finished school, and I was number one in debate, elocution, academics. Um, I was back then in scouts, Mm -hmm. and I just won the Bravery Award and received it from the president of India. And... I came back and two days later, I was raped by three of my seniors. I was pulled into the bathroom and I was raped and I was using the male restroom and I didn't think I was instigating anything or I would, was trying to do anything. Um, it just so happened that that day they, they needed me up on the stage to like do these awards and present these awards and at such. And I was receiving an award myself. And, you know, I had happened to have some makeup on and such, which is to, for the lighting and such. So I kind of started questioning myself. Was it my fault that it happened? And it kind of created an uproar in the community where people started calling us and they started abusing my parents, calling me names, the F word, the the homosexual word. The, you know, in India, there's a lot of derogatory words for trans people or effeminate people. And they started doing that to the point where we had to get up and move. So my parents, we used to live where my dad's office would provide accommodations, um, like railway quarters or such they're called. Mm-hmm. Um, we got up and moved. We moved 50 miles, 50 kilometers away and pretty much started a fresh life. And when I say fresh life, it was like my mom basically saying, your dad and your brothers are going to throw you out of the house if you don't stop this. And that stopped. Um, I contained a lot of it within myself, um, and I had nobody to talk to, and I really struggled uh, in my room, um, which I shared with my brothers. Uh, when they were not there, uh, I struggled 
being my confident self because I was a very bold person. I mean, my dad was dealing, uh, you know, working through his way through anxiety, depression and alcoholism. And I was the one who stood strong for the family and such. But within myself, I had I was completely lost. I didn't exist. And that didn't open up until I moved to the United North America. Um, and that didn't happen until I was 21. So like all those seven, eight years, I was so bottled up inside. I was 350 pounds. Mm. I put on so much weight because I told myself if I, if I cut my hair, I always had long hair. If I cut my hair and put on weight, then nobody's go- like, I wouldn't feel pretty enough to ever dress up. And none of my mom's clothes will fit me, so I wouldn't be able to wear it all. Um, and, you know, it came to North America, and that's when I truly started expressing my gender. Um, but, you know, uh, as fate has it, my brother had already moved here, so I ended up having to live with him, and he was vehemently opposed to it. Mm. Um, and so I was left to do nothing but... Um, to like kind of find my way around. And I came to uh, be in a more like in, amongst community or friends I know. And out of all of that, I moved to um, Idaho, which is, you know, where I was like, I don't know anybody. I'm going to go here. To sc- I'm going to go here to school. And I think that's where I started finding my community. And I started really um, blossoming. But there was so much internalized transphobia. Mm-hmm. There was so much of it that this is going to take me away from this community. This is not going to make me live a quote-unquote normal life. Because as an Indian, as a South Asian, this this is I've you're told to be a certain way. You either are a doctor or an engineer. And I was neither because I went and did an undergrad in culinary arts and catering technology. So already I was like, you know, the black sheep of the family. And now this part of like trying to be yourself and express yourself was so much more difficult. And I would say the journey was very, very, very slow that I took to a lot of things. Um, I didn't feel like it was worth even coming to North America because I had no support. Um, I didn't have a legal status. I had a legal status, but I was in a student visa and I had no access to hormones or a community. So I tried to kill myself three times when I was in grad school, a fully scholarship paid grad school. Um, I tried to totally stay away from the community, any community. And the journey was so painful um, until I discovered the Bay Area. Mm. Uh, I want to... Sorry. Wow. We'll just... Gosh, my heart is broken and at the same time you're sitting here so beautiful so confident um so willing to share your story and i'm 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 grateful for that i want to go back to to india and and because part of the conversation i wanted to have was understanding the the diverse um education process Mm -hmm. of gender identity Mm -hmm. and at the moment in which um you know, your parents and your family uh, really understood you to identify in a different way. I mean, today, you know, India actually um, recognizes transgender as a mm-hmm. third gender, right? Um, 
if you could walk us through what that means and how that's different than how people understand transgender in America. Cause I think, I think that, I think that's, that's worth noting the, the, uh, the cultural differences as well. Absolutely. You bring up a great point. And I think it's not just isolated to India, but the Asian cultures, um, but more, which are very rich in culture, have a very set way of how or a worldview of how the community needs to behave as a whole, how an individual needs to present and needs to be thought of in a in a in a room, in a setting and such. So this Two distinctions that I make as a trans woman in India and here is I think a trans person in India is going to resign themselves to the fact that they're never going to be able to assimilate and blend in to the community. And it's definitely changing. But the number of people who are working in offices, the number of people who are getting education, who are accepted by family is on fingertips. Like you can count them on fingers. The entirety of the society sees trans folks, which who are also known as hijras, eunuchs, uh, alis, or kojas. These are all folks that are treated as a third gender. So yes, there is a lot of empowerment. There is government forms that allow you to put as a third gender as a T and such. But to me, North America, the folks that I know and myself, we want to have a blended in lifestyle and some of us want to do advocacy some of us want to just have a family and settle down but at the end of the day nobody wants to be called out and have to carry around this stamp or label Um, I think that's the big distinction I see can I ask what's your relationship like now with your parents and your brothers is there any relationship or has there been any change in how they feel about you and your life it's been a journey for them, and I have to say the relationship is very beautiful today Great. Uh, with my mom um, and my dad. My dad has really come around a lot um, into the fact that they have lived with me uh, at the time I was married. Um, so the stigma now for them is that I'm a divorced woman versus I'm a trans woman, so it's very <laughs> funny. <laughs> Um, my brother, uh, I don't have contact at all with one, my younger brother. Um, we have never, even beyond my trans identity, we have never connected. Mm. Um, so we don't have a relationship. And my, my elder brother, he's he's the one who barged into my psychotherapist's room and said, you're not gay, you're not trans. Why are you telling him that he's trans? Why are you giving him hormones? I mean, he flew 3,000 miles to come into that meeting without telling me. From that to, you know, publicly acknowledging me at a family gathering that I've come long ways and I've survived so much, he's really transformed. But I say this because it's not the case with most trans folks, and I always address and attest that you have to be on the journey with them because it is as much of a tra- challenge for them as much as it is for you because they have dreamt of things for you. And so it's, you know, it's definitely come long ways. On the, the topic of gender violence, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I want to go back to that as well and just uh, how you take a tragedy, something so traumatic to you in and continue the education for people to understand how to combat gender mm-hmm. violence, especially in you know communities that mm-hmm. lack the knowledge, lack the mm-hmm. information. 
um, when your parents, you know, the when you suffer through that very tragic moment in in India, uh, and you moved, you moved in order to then hide yourself again. Do you remember just you know part of that the courage and the resiliency to although it was very isolating, but but to continue conversations with your family how the violence against women against uh you know gender that's different or something that's outside of what you had commented of being very macho uh, i think there's there's a lot now that people are talking about but i'd love to hear your personal thoughts i think we've definitely come like we live in a different world today i think that aspect of you know a sexual harassment or, you know, rape, especially about around female identifying bodies, has definitely come to the forefront. But my take, during that time, I didn't have a lot of allies. I had, you know, I had to reassert in myself to be nothing wrong. And I still vividly pick, remember this picture of me standing in the hallway of our tiny little apartment and this new apartment we had moved from, a big house. And my dad beating the shit out of me, telling me that, look at yourself in the mirror. This is how you walk. This is how you talk. I used to learn. My mom was a professional dancer in India. So I, I wanted to always, and I was learning dance. But after this incident, he was like, no dance, nothing. And so, you know, I'm looking at myself in the mirror. He's pushed me to look at myself. So, you know, I think the burden of going through such a traumatic experience relies on the victim, just like it relies with most people of color, the burden of responsibility to prove that you are, you know, trying to build yourself, you are trying to stay strong, you're not trying to be a victim. And so I've always had to take on that role. But I think that incident fortified in me that, uh, you know, I have got to carry the burden and the responsibility if I got to survive, not even thrive. Um, but I think from a standpoint of, you know, how it's addressed in India or in any culture, I think a lot of it is unsaid. When the community was going after this and they had actually gone out and told people that this is how, you know, it happened. So the people who raped me actually went out and told people that they did this to me. And it kind of spread in the school with the teachers. And it's there's the there isn't a cause or a, there isn't an investigation, but it's hearsay. And the, her, the society moves us in a herd mentality. So that kind of like literally takes you out of any equation to be able to state your side. Sean? I, I can't imagine what what that was like i mean when you when you came to the united states were you specifically trying to get away from that or was this more just i want you know i want a different life in, in the united states i mean that's actually a very uh poignant question um i never wanted to come to the america mm -hmm. my brother was already here mm -hmm. my mom and i were very close she was she didn't have any she didn't have anybody to speak to. My mom, my dad was going through his struggles of alcoholism and such, and never wanted to leave my mom behind, irrespective of what it was for me. Um, but it came to a point where it was about not just living my life, but not even living in India, because I just explored so many options to try and be myself and try to, you know, kind of 
make things work without fully expressing myself. Mm -hmm. And the tipping point came when, you know, I, I started working in a multinational company and I started seeing a lot of folks from U.S. came down and I started seeing that they were gay, they were lesbian and there were no trans people visible at that time. And they were themselves like, you know, and that made me kind of want to see if there's an option, there's an opportunity. And there's been many times since then that I've thought I should go back to India. Even today, I would love to go back to India and live if I can have the same quality and safety of life because it is a beautiful country. It is a great culture. But there are certain things and ways to change um, very, very deep-rooted mentalities. This question can be explored excuse me, in, in very many ways. And it, it's, it sounds simple, but it really isn't. And that is, when was, when was it for you? When was it that moment in which you said, I want to live, I want to survive, considering, you know, stopped you and you said, I tried to kill myself three, three times, three different times. At what point did you just say, I want to live? Um, and this is where I'll pick up my story. I think it was when I came to San Francisco Pride in 2003. I had met a few South Asian folks on Yahoo Chats back then, and I'll always be grateful to them. And I came down here and I saw people live the way they did. Um, I had a group of friends up in Idaho that, you know, used to cross-dress, and we used to go out, and, you know, it was a old penitentiary that was converted into a gay club in Idaho back then that had these midnight parties, because it was so conservative then that, um, you know, it it wasn't that open, and I was like, I can't live on, in a penitentiary for the rest of my life being myself, right? But then I came here, and that's when I truly realized I got to be in the Bay Area. I got to explore. I got to make this happen. I got to give it my best shot like I do with everything else. You know, I've given, I graduated with a 3.7 on GPA in my MBA. I had a job. I like took care of my parents at the age of 19. I was running the household from here. And I was like, I got to give it my best shot. So I would say that's when I really came alive. And from there on, it's been a beautiful journey. Obviously, there's been ups and downs. Mm. Yeah, we all go up and down here in San Francisco. We could tell you and share many stories of that. John? To touch back on the issue of, of large companies, multinationals, I mean, do you see them as, I mean, in, in many ways, they're kind of the embodiment of of kind of a very conservative, state enforced conformity. Mm-hmm. But... And especially we've seen this in, in certain, like over the NBA, or no, what was it, the the NCAA mm-hmm. uh, a tournament where it was a lot of the big companies that said, no, we will not, you know, do these things. And if you have, uh, you know, we will not do business with mm-hmm. the state or with this organization if they're doing bathroom bills mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. So. Could you talk a bit about what the role, what can companies do right and wrong, you know, the big companies that actually have a lot of power in this country um, to help 
LGBTQ people, people on the margins all around. There's a lot they can do. <laughs> um, and I would say it's, a, it's an individual level, and then there is a at a very community level. Mm-hmm. At an individual level, it's, n- it's about making sure that everybody feels inclusive. You got to have all gender restrooms. You've got to have events that people feel welcomed. Um, you know, you got to have policies that let people thrive, not just be there because they need a paycheck. And at a community level, it's about their resp- corporate responsibility. Um, when things come out in the, with the current, you know, <laughs> White House staff or whoever is sitting up there, you know, there's transgender bans and things like that. Mm-hmm. How do they come out and take a stand? And how do they make sure that they're really focused on the distribution of wealth? You know, there is so many nonprofits that do amazing work, not just for the LGBTQ community, not for TGNC, but like all around. But how do they balance that? And there are some foundations and such, but a lot of these end up being check boxes, right? They're meeting the compliance, they're fulfilling their social responsibility end of the end of day. But it's beyond that. It's making sure that you are in the game and you are driving change because think of it, huge companies have not just a critical mass, but they have a common mass that they can move along and make a lot of change. Mm-hmm. And there's so many companies that have really stood up um, and I really admire a lot of those. There is a summit called Out an Equal Conference where they invite all the, LGB- all the LGBT leaders from various companies in North America, but all over the world. And I was my first time was going last year, and I was just blown away by the amount of transgender work they had done. Not just like to just say, "Oh, we offer the best, but best in class." Let's stay on this. Mm-hmm. The LGBTQ community has very complex relationship with corporations, mm-hmm. and I think employment in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was once upon a time a president issued an executive order to go after anybody who is considered gay and fire them from Mm -hmm. the federal government. And here we are in 2019 in which, uh, at least here in San Francisco, you know, a good 40% of our pride parade celebration are employee resource groups from these Mm -hmm. large companies, tech companies who employ LGBTQ people. And then at the same time, The LGBTQ movement is no stranger to being able to pull political power when companies uh, uh, have wronged them. For example, you know, Miller's, the beer. um, I don't drink beer. That's beer, right? Miller. 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 There's no S. Miller. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But... But, uh, but, but because of their anti-LGBTQ policies, we had once successfully boycotted this company to the point in which they changed their policies. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward to you know, staying on this idea of all these companies who are doing great, who are being inclusive of LGBTQ, like, what, what, are, what are your feelings as far as when companies are inclusive but might not be doing enough? And when I say mm-hmm. that... You know, I I go back to what Laverne Cox said to executives at Visa. It was like, yeah, you know, you have a gay cisgender um, executive, you know, here at this talk that I'm doing, but you don't hire women who look like me, trans women of color. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the socioeconomic issues that trans people of color face, you know, trans people of color are the most 
marginalize, if not face the the highest percentage of violence mm-hmm. uh, than many other communities. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts and where you're at today. You work for a one of the, I think, the largest global retailer in the world and and probably in a position, or I should say probably, are in a position to make incredible progress as far as trans rights at the company. Um. You know, I have struggled with that myself. And being a trans woman, I will say that I'm very privileged. And we all have privilege. But within the trans community, as a trans woman of color, I am very privileged because it doesn't happen that you make six figures. You work for a company like Walmart. You have the support of your parents. You were married to a cis person at one point. It doesn't happen. So even my view is a little myopic, and I'm still learning that process. But here's how I'll put it. Since I've been starting to do a lot of work in the community, I've realized that advocacy is very authentic, and it's all about driving change that very minute. In a corporation, you can go with that pace. It can happen that way. And I'm learning this firsthand. Um, in any company I've worked, there will be change. There will be uh, betterment and there will be inclusion, but it comes as the overall strategy. It comes as a part of the entirety of what are the accomplishments and goals for that year. So I I really encourage, and I have actually recruited a lot of trans folks in my company, and I'm so proud of that, to come join me in the ARG or be part of the moment of change or just be visible at the events we have. Because what that does is it kind of brings together that awareness. And that's the first step. Once you have awareness and people see that there's actually leaders who identify as trans or GNC, but have blended in, but now are coming out of the shell, which was me as well, until about four years ago, you would never catch me in a work setting to be openly trans. I was I transitioned and I moved away from that company and that was it. It was only about four years ago that I started becoming a lot and lot with lot and lot visible. So when you come together and then you start the discussion, there's awareness that builds, and through that awareness, there's some acceleration of change that happens. And I have heard many times that trans people of color are not hired enough, and there is no ifs and buts about it. Trans folks are three times more likely to be unemployed. of trans people, especially of color, live live below the poverty line by about 30%. So they're not even making enough to make ends meet. So I understand that here is a big company or any company you look at and go, you guys all have all the money, you will never hire me. But it takes that one person, it takes that one thought to say, you know what, I'm going to break those barriers Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to be okay with the status quo to be as is and smash it and go into the interviews. And, you know, there's a great organization that I will quote, um, it's called Trans Can Work. They're out of LA and, you know, they came out and did a workshop. I saw them at, in Houston or in, and a few other places. It's all about empowering ourselves and believing that you are perfect the way you are first. And a lot of trans folks, it's a journey. You know, I still struggle with it. Um, I, and I'm no, nowhere close to many other trans people that I look up to because their journeys have been a lot more harder than mine. And say, you know what, let me be the beginning of change. And I think that's how we get in the face of corporations. Um, And that is the only way. 
mm-hmm. because sitting down and having a formal meeting and putting up decks together, presentations, that's all great in the corporate world, but it's not going to bring about change. And I get told a lot, you're never happy that anything is enough. That is true. <laughs> you know, in my lifetime, I want to see change happen for many other trans people. I'm not waiting for seven generations later to for trans change to happen. That needs to happen today. So yes, I'm going to say there's not good enough because you know what? If I was a cis person and if I was white and I looked like a male, I would be somewhere else in life and so would every single one of my trans person of color. Mm-hmm. Just to follow up on that, so I'm guessing at the workplace though, it's easy breezy. Everybody just gets it, right? They understand trans... Um... <laughs> Issues and policies, and you never go through a hard day and overcome that, right? I would I would say yes in sarcasm, but no. <laughs> so the work the work begins with you, is is basically is what I'm hearing. It does, Michelle, and uh, I have seen trans leaders who have caused the moment and caused the change in the community. Such a change and revolution is yet to come in the corporate world. Um, and it goes back to the fact that we are so marginalized within a marginalized community. And I'll take that a little out of the corporate sector where we live in the Bay Area. We live in a bubble. I've lived in places like Houston. I've lived in Toronto. And I'll tell you that in every place I've lived, the saddest thing I've seen is within the community, the trans people of color, the trans colored, trans gay man of color is the lowest totem pole in our community. So we didn't we don't need to go to the corporations. We need to look within ourselves if we call ourselves a community and make sure that in the big alphabet soup of queer identity, the T, the GNC is not lost. If you can band together, and I've said this many times, if I can expect whether in a corporation setting or in a community, cis white males who are the most privileged Mm -hmm. or cis people in general don't stand for me. I can't go and ask someone else to who's there to make money to be standing for me. Right. So I think, yes, that it starts there. But it's also the shocking thing for me has been that even in a corporate setting at my workplace and such, when I start talking about trans issues, Within the LGBT community, there's a lot of, really? I'm like, you didn't know that? Mm. Like, seriously? You didn't know? (laughs) I mean, we did Transgender Day of Remembrance, and we had, you know, kin folks from Oakland LGBT Center. And when we flashed up how many trans women of color were killed last year, and I could not even continue talking, people were shocked. I mean, in the community, there isn't that awareness. How do you expect somebody sitting in a sweet suite who's prior, who's, we're not on their priority list. We are, but it's not on the top. I mean, ROI and driving profit is the number one re, like way to for any company, right? Uh, so, yeah, that's what I would say. Um, so in that corporate setting, mm-hmm. how do you talk to someone who is concerned about you know, even if they're they're let's say they they I, I want to do the right thing, but I'll get fired if I don't keep their ROI in the right spot mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. make sure this division's in the black. Uh, what's it, what what message from not just transgender employees, but from all the allies as well, should be going to that person to convince that person that. I think we all go into a workplace to get a paycheck first and foremost, and especially in the barrier, you need a paycheck. <laughs> um, 
and most of us want to be compliant, especially in, in this Bay Area space where there's a lot of people who are from the East Eastern cultures. And we, we're all conditioned to believe that we need to go in and do our best. We need to be liked and we need to be compliant. So if a direction comes from the company, from the top, where they have woven in diversity and inclusion, inclusion in big, bold letters, mm. into their corporate strategy, into their goals for this year, next year, that kind of lays the atmosphere, the ambience that, yes, I can be an ally. Yes, I can be supportive. And then the second piece, the way people and allies could be empowering is just by showing up. Is just by showing up. Because you know what happens when you show up? You have a privilege that you might not be flaunting, but you have privilege that you're now weaponizing and you're using it at the table. Just by being there, you're being supportive. And that visibility is the starting point. And the next step is how do you pu pull people along with you? How do you make sure that if you're in a in a position of power, whether that's your title or whether that's your access to people, you make sure that you pull people in, you call people in, irrespective of whether you know, you don't know, you dislike, you agree or you don't agree, and make sure that they are in with you rather than saying, I don't like you, I don't like you, or you're discriminating in trans people, like calling them out. And that's how you bring allyship together. We're going to have a moment in which our audience can ask Remy uh, your questions, so be thinking about them. We have a roaming mic, um, but before we get to the audience, uh, Remy, I have a question for you. And this, for many of us who are immigrants and or have families who are refugees or asylum seekers or who came as immigrants here to this country, we still have a connection back home or to mm -hmm. our native country in which we the change that we've seen here, the progressive ideas that we've seen here, we almost want or wish to apply that back home as mm -hmm. well. And we want to inform and educate. Mm -hmm. If we come full circle with your story and the the trauma, the, the very horrible journey, you know, you had to get to, to get here to San Francisco um, and not just to America, but to San Francisco. Um, the, the, what kind of work, what kind of, change do you do you know personally um in hopes that there is also change back home when it comes to gender-based violence uh, sexual violence women's rights because uh, you've touched on all of that mm -hmm. today trans rights uh, gender identity and education and there's a big south uh, asian community here in america mm -hmm. There's there's a lot of that right now, even when I'm just saying that and how you do the education here and how mm -hmm. you think the education here can also promote back home mm -hmm. in hopes that back home changes as well. It is a big, big responsibility. Um, and I'm doing a very humble effort. I would not say, you know, I'm making strides or I'm a trailblazer. Um, but here's how, how I will paint the picture in when you cook, in, especially in Indian culture, you have a few pots going on. You have the rice, you have the dal, which is the lentils, you've got the curry that's cooking, you've got the meats. That's somehow, that's kind of what I'm trying to do right now is I'm very active. I'm the pride co-chair at my work here um, at Walmart, and I try to do my best to bring in the transgender aspect, but in general, the aspect of inclusion. Um, in the community, I try to be visible at an individual level like this or with, with great organizations that I want, I work with. Um, 
back in India, India's never take, been taken away from me because I'm Indian. I think like an Indian. <laughs> uh, somebody told me this out of my tea, but I was like, no, I'm a Canadian. No, I'm an American. Um, but there, he, there, I was told, yes, you're an Indian. My mom said the same. Um, <laughs> I li- listened to Indian music. I ate Indian food, all of that. So it was um, the, the way I connect back is working within my South Asian community in the Bay Area and making sure that they're aware, um, you know, and f- right or wrong, stand up for what's wrong mm-hmm. and may not be always the most popular liked person in the community. And that is true in, for me in the South Asian community in the Bay Area, uh, but have to stand up. But back home, it's a whole different journey. So um, we've come long ways, legislation's improved and such. But I started working with um, understanding what is that journey of trans folks and of gay men, because that's very prevalent, um, or I should say that's the big population that's been more vocal. And I work with an organization or two uh, called one, which is called Aravaniyat Project. And this is a project that essentially employs and develops uh, trans women um, who are either in sex work or, or in begging and gives them an option to leave those things and come to art and paint these huge murals and kind of gives them a new beginning. It's an option. It's not like you have to go do this. And that's the organization I work very closely with. Uh, they, they produce amazing art and they, they continue to recruit and bring together trans women who want to have a change of life, who who've gone through such horrendous stories of having to self-mutilate their genitals because they needed to fit in the community to now thriving and like having so many firsts, like the first transgender radio jockey within that community and such. So it's my attempt to try and work with them very closely. Um, And I continuously reach out to folks on an individual level um, who are, you know, within our community and are going through that struggle um, we just, uh, you know, there's been this conversation and change and we are all privileged and we kind of forget that at the end of the day when Friday night rolls in, we just want to have fun and party. And I've always called this out that first make the change before we celebrate. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't expect to be everything fine and dandy just because you are fine and dandy. So with that hope, um, and a few of us have banded together and we're starting uh, a South Asian-focused or brown-focused support group at Oakland LGBT Center that's starting this Sunday. And, you know, we're putting some events together at Strat. And I, I try my best to be involved in all of this while still holding a full-time job. And that's, again, a very humble attempt of mine. I, I always have to, I mean, you ask this a lot of people who, who are doing a ton of things. How do you do all this stuff? How do you have time for yourself and, and so keep it going? I think my motorcycle helps a lot because it cuts it out of the commute. <laughs> <laughs> so I could buy some time, up, time back. But I think it's the passion. It's the need to bring the change. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are weekends when I don't leave home, but I know that that's for a greater cause. Um, the impact is so important in what you do every single day. What you say, what you do, how you do it, who you do it with, all of those have impacts. And I, I would say that it's about being smart, it's about being efficient, and it's about recruiting people. 
So I'd recruit, I'm a manager and I know how to get people to do work, right? Because, and they have to do it because they, they need a paycheck. But how do you recruit people outside in the community to do work or represent you when you're not in the room? And that's been a, you know, a 50% win, right? Because half of the people you recruit are um, unfortunately not in the cause with you or just in that one instance are somebody like a seasonal worker. They're there for just that instance, right? So I think that's how I get about doing what I can. But again, I, I don't do much. I need to do a lot more. You're such an inspiration. <laughs> I woke up feeling like... What are you doing with your life now? Uh, I, I know exactly what I'm doing. I want to be right next to you and, and doing the work with you. You're so incredible. We're going to open it up to the audience now. So if you have a question for Remy, we'll take them. Speaking to the, uh, the mic, it is being recorded. Hello. Thank Hi. you so much for uh, speaking today. And I really appreciate it. And I also feel that I learned so much by listening to you. It is not a question, uh, but it's a comment. What I pick one sentence that you spoke was, let it begin with me. I really like that because I feel like, you know, as an advocate, as a human being in the world, we need to build an ally. And every time, you know, when I have an opportunity, I will always like to start with me. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, something very small such as uh, misusing the pronoun, you know, something that is simple. Mm-hmm. It can mean so much for someone, you know, and uh, any opportunity that we can, can bring the equality, let it begin with me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm. Anyone else? Thank you for sharing your story. You're welcome. Uh, this question you can answer or not. Will you able to go back to India as the Indian citizen? Um, it's going to be a little long of a story, but I'll try to be brief. Um, so they took away... So Real start shot. After I moved to the Bay Area, I tried to transition. So I was at Lion Martin and I started trying to take hormones. And I was working for a big retailer out in Walnut Creek. They got to know about it. They took away my visa and I had to leave the country. Wow. So I had to move to Canada. Um, with my merit score and everything, I got permanent residency in Canada. I left with two suitcases, one of which is pink. And I got a greyhound and I went to Canada and I started fresh there. And I said, this is where I'm going to live. This is where I'm going to transition and such. So as part of that, um, I went to the Indian consulate in Canada and I said, I have changed my name. I have changed my gender um, and I need you to give me a new passport. Um, They arrested me within the Indian consulate saying that I was committing fraud. I had to call the RCMP. A few of my friends had to come bail me out and I got out. Since then, I've not had a status because I wasn't a Canadian citizen. I didn't have a passport. My family was still in the U.S. My parents had moved to the U.S. So I had to go to the immigration minister of Canada and sit outside his office and get a person of identity passport sort of a document. And every time I crossed any border, that was the hell. Did I go to India? No. I went to India in 2015. And it was a very sad story of how I had to go to India. My mom was in India. She happened to have, she had a stroke and she was visiting and I need to bring her back. And I couldn't go as myself because I am just 
you know, not accepted in the com in the greater community. Within my parents, yes, but not in the greater community. They have, they don't know I've transitioned. They don't know I exist as this. Um, so I dressed up as a guy, and I went. But it was a failure, a total flop, because everybody that I talked to would refer me as, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, because that's the, the sir, madam thing is so big in India. As soon as I got out of the airport, the porter who came to help me is telling, because they didn't think I spoke Indian language, um, they were tell the he's telling the other guy, look, a girl dressed up like a guy trying to pass for a guy, and I'm like, really? If you only heard my story, so I did go to India. Um, I had a lot of hassles through immigration, getting inside the country and getting back. Um, I would love to go to India, um, but again, I just I'm not sure if I'm willing to risk it, quote unquote, but I've been dying to go work with the girls with Aravanyat Project and, you know, discover India through me, through the true me and make all those connections back because there is an element of fear, but when there is fear, there is so much hesitation, but that fear shouldn't really exist because I know that India is a very accepting country and a lot of my folks will open up, accept me. That's the dream I want to live in. You're welcome. Anyone else? I have a question. Yeah. Um, you do a lot of events, and, and you dance, and you perform, and, and you also work at this large company. You have could you, say it's Walmart. You also work at Walmart. <laughs> but what I was getting at is... Do you, you know, do you see yourself at some point wanting to have as the core of your life, as your main job, you know, doing outreach and, and, you know, running a nonprofit or something like that? I mean, or do you really enjoy the corporate life and, and see you can really make change from it within? Are you recruiting me? <laughs> <laughs> the Commonwealth Club is a 501c3. <laughs> I told myself that when I get to a point in life that I've settled my parents mm -hmm. and I've come out to realize that the security trap that I've built myself is truly a trap. It's, you know, the, the six-figure job, the home, the car, the motorcycle, these are all things that are so material. And I've said when it comes to that point, I will evaluate evaluate where my happiness is. Mm -hmm. And I look at happiness as three or four things. One is, have you accomplished what you went set out to accomplish? Not just the transition, but like your material accomplishments. The second one is, have you really been able to build that status? You know, like which is you're living, you're breathing. That's your status, right, to begin with. A third one is, have you been able to... Um, build sustainable sta happiness, whether that's friends, community of the work you do. But the one status that I've struggled with is generative status, is generative status is have I been able to give back enough to my community? And to answer your question in that very long-winded way, I am at that pinnacle, at that point where I want to jump into this full-time. Mm -hmm. um, I want to do this full-time because as earlier mentioned, there's only so much you can do in a corporate space. It is a part of the conversation. It is not the conversation. And all for the right reasons, right? That's a different setting. They didn't set, set out to do great humani humanity-driven stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So, yes, I am 
at some point sooner or later, probably sooner, going to jump into this full time, want to do this outreach and get out of this security trap of owning homes and, you know, having this much of a bank balance and really, really do a lot more. Because as I said, I'm very privileged. I am very privileged as a trans woman of color, come, an immigrant trans woman of color, a rape victim to have come this far and not bragging, but there is so much I need to give back. I almost feel guilty. And this is, an, and I'll close, I'll cl answer, finish off your question with this. When I transitioned and when I was married, we would go into trans clubs and the trans women wouldn't talk to me. And I would try to talk to them and they'd be like, girl, you are a fish, get away from us. And I'd be like, no, I'm trans, I'm trans like you. They're like, you can't have a man next to you. You can't be looking this passable. So I, I've been very privileged and I've had the passing privilege. I've had the economic privilege, the social privilege. And so I've got, and the cis privilege of being able to blend in within them. And so I've got so much to give back because if I'm talking about distribution of wealth, this is about distribution of justice and that needs to come from me. Wow. Wow. Um, I get to have the last question, and <laughs> this show is is coming to an end very soon here. And, you know, Remy, thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your courage, your journey, your strength. So many of us are going to walk outside of the Commonwealth Club a whole lot more more confident and better human beings just by listening to your story. You shared every reason possible for survival through your struggles, every reason possible to be strong at your weakest point. Mm -hmm. And this is a backwards question. I hardly do this. But while I was thinking about my last question, you know, I, I think that you're going to answer this question with the words of encouragement that I'm looking for. But what is your fear? Because if I were to ask you, you know, what are your hopes? Mm -hmm. I think you're a walking hope for all of us. Mm -hmm. So the answer is already, you've answered that throughout mm -hmm. this entire program. But if we were able to learn from someone who's willing to survive through the moments of mm -hmm. desperation, hopelessness, and, and mm -hmm. death, basically, to hear what your authentic fear would be is where I think many of us can walk outside and say the change can also be from, from within us too. Mm -hmm. My biggest fear is that I'm not going to be able to go far in this change or in this journey because I can run fast and I can do a lot of things, but I'm going to go only so far if I'm doing it by myself. If I'm able to bring more people, I'm going to go farther. And when I say go, the destiny is about, destination, sorry, is about change. It's about inclusion. So my biggest fear, and I have to admit that I face it. I've seen my trans community face it, that we are all, we are all alone in this, and we are going to end up being all alone in this cause. That's happened at the federal level. And that's happened at the state level when there was bathroom bills. My biggest fear is we are going to be, we are so already so segregated, so marginalized. And my biggest fear is all of us that do all this 
attempt bring change and such we'll end up doing this and just have our legacies just be written in a book or mentioned but we won't drive the entirety and build that critical mastery common mass and everything just to be normal and functioning and there no, doesn't need to be a discussion about being trans in a work setting in a community it's just the nature of life and that is my biggest fear is that i i don't want us to be a, a unique specimen in the museum or a different species in the zoo i want us all to be together and make this happen together and that is my biggest fear that we are not there and that it's it's only going to get worse Remy, thank you so much for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club of California. Thank you you for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you to John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. Thank you to our beautiful audience. Thanks for being here on this great day. We got a break from the rain. The Michelle Miao Show is here every Thursday. For the full schedule, you can head to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. I promise... More great people uh, will be here, and Remy is is proof of that. So more of of Remy's uh, will be here at the club. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We're here every Thursday live at the Commonwealth Club, and you can listen to past shows at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS.